What's up? And welcome to Forte Catholic Radio. It is great to be here with you again today. I absolutely love coming in here every week and, and recording this show. It's a lot of fun. Uh, it's been great doing this. We're on episode 32 now. So uh, thank you to all the all you guys who have been uh, listening live and texting me like um, random thoughts about the show and all you guys that have been listening on the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. Uh, it's just been a lot of fun over these last few months. We started back in October. It's just been cool to see the audience continue to grow and to continue to kind of innovate and, and uh, um, try to help me get better. So thank you, guys. Uh, we have a, a great show planned for you here today. For the second week in a row, we we're actually pre-recording the show. Um, so if you're listening to this live on Tuesday night, I am currently um, on retreat um, with, with the Ablaze Ministry staff. We are um, at our uh, yearly staff retreat Monday through Friday. So uh, I love this feeling because when I, re- when I pre-record, it kind of feels like on Tuesday evenings I'm bi-locating. So like I'm, I will be live on the radio and also um, at a retreat, probably eating dinner or something out at the retreat. So um, keep us in your prayers this week. Uh, we, this is like our, our chance as missionaries um, after the school year is over to just kind of go uh, let the Lord recharge us uh, before we uh, get busy again with our summer stuff, summer camps and, and, uh, and trips and all that sort of thing. So... Today, what we're going to be talking about is a spirit of abandon, like completely abandoning, abandoning ourselves to the will of God and what that looks like. Um, so in the first segment, we're going to be talking about that. What, what, what is abandonment to God's will? Um, what does that term mean? And what does it actually look like in our lives? In the second segment, we're going to be talking to Eric Sammons about his book, the old evangelization, which is funny because if, you're, if you've uh, listened to Catholic Radio for the past few years or been around the church, you know that the new evangelization has been this huge fad, right? Uh, so he's like, well, let's, let's get back to the basics, all right? Let's, about what the new evangelization actually is, let's get back to the basics of learning from Jesus, the original and master evangelizer, on how we can, how we can evangelize. Um, and then in the last segment, we're going to um, connect that back to uh, connect evangelization and this abandonment together, um, like, like uniting ourselves to God's will and and evangelization, how those two things really link up together very, very well. We're going to be doing that by looking through the uh, the lens of the story of David in the Bible. Uh, a lot of you have heard this, you know, the story of him being a king, heard the story of him, you know, slaying, slaying Goliath and all these kind of things. We're actually going to look at a, a couple of chapters of some lesser known stories of him and uh, some of the Psalms that he wrote. And what we can learn about uh, uniting our will to the will of the Father. So, without further ado, let's get into this spirit of abandon. If you've been, if you're listening the last few minutes and you're like, "What does he mean by abandon? Doesn't abandon leave mean to like, you know?" And I, the first time, first thing I think of when I hear abandon is like, "Oh, somebody abandoned somebody, or somebody abandoned their pet, or abandon, or an abandoned house, or that sort of thing." Right? So, not the greatest, the greatest image, but. Um, when I when I first started looking at this word, I had the same kind of thoughts. Like, well, that's a kind of an odd word to use with our relationship with God. So then I did what um, it's graduation week, so I uh, I was very inspired by going to look at uh, what most valedictorians do uh, at their speeches. They'll say, "I looked up the word success in the dictionary, and it said blah 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 blah." So I'm going to. Uh, be trite and do exactly what they do. I looked up the word abandon on dictionary.com. And the, the definition that makes sense for us is that it's a complete lack of restraint or inhibition. So in our relationship with God, what we want 
we want our will to be united with the will of the Father. We want God's will to be done, right? But there are things in our lives because we're imperfect, because we've sinned, because we we uh, we like our own will, that sort of thing, that we that we are restrained in giving God complete control of our lives, in saying, "God, you are God. I am not. You are in control of this." Um, and we have another word for that is those inhibitions, the things that. Like the in, the inhibitors, the things between us and our in our relationship with God growing. So um, we're going to look at five things about what this what this spirit of abandon means for us. Number one is that it means that we are living and working and being fully abandoned to God's will. So what this is 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 it's a trusting, childlike, peaceful surrender to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So we are children of the Father. So if you think about kids. And how they have this childlike awe, this childlike wonder. And kids are very trusting, right? This is why we have to teach kids, like, hey, don't take candy from a strange man in a car. Because kids are, are just naturally trusting. They trust people in authority. They trust adults, right? So, like, I think as we grow older, and for, for some good ways, like, we, don't, we know that taking candy from a strange man is not a good thing. But we do lose this inherent ability to trust people. And we, we tend to apply that to our relationship with God. It's like, oh, we hold back our trust. It's like we say, God, I trust you. I trust in your promises. But then whenever things get stressful or things get hard or we're not feeling it in our prayer life, we start to kind of back off from, from our trust in God and like, okay, I'm going to trust in myself now. But this, what this, this abandonment looks like is this peaceful surrender. We're surrendering our will. We're saying, God, I really want to play video games right now to finish my evening off, but I haven't prayed yet today. Um, so I surrender my will, right? And I, and I, I mean, there are times where I, I'm able to do that and times where I'm not. We're all, we're all flawed and trying to do this whole uh, Christian thing together. And then the other goal, like to be, to be f- what being fully abandoned to God's will looks like is, and this was, this was challenging for me when I was reading this, preparing for the show, is it's, it's an unquestioning, an undoubting submission to the will of God in all things. And I first read this, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Unquestioning and undoubting? We talk all the time about, in ministry about how, like, when people have questions about faith, it's a good thing. People call into Catholic radio, and they have these questions about God, like, oh, I have this hang-up about Mary. Why does the church, uh, why does the church pray to saints? Uh, why does the church believe in that, that that piece of bread becomes Jesus, right? People have these hang-ups. And asking these questions are a good thing. Why? Because if you ask questions and you actually listen to the answer, you can get the answer to that question and it can help you grow closer to God, right? So questions are always good if, they're, if they come from a humble place of, okay, I actually want to learn the answer and I'm not just trying to be a jerk, right? So if, if that's the case, if we're supposed to, if, we, if, uh, if asking questions is getting us answers, then the goal is, that at some point we won't have any questions, we won't have any doubts anymore, right? For many of us, that won't be until we get to heaven. But if that's the goal, we continue to ask these questions so that more and more we become undoubting and unquestioning of the will of God in our lives. And that's, that's really, really difficult, but that's the goal. So where are you right now? And then how do we get there, right? It also looks like a total surrender of one's life to the action of the Holy Spirit. So when I when I when I read this, 
I think about this prayer that was um, on the, like in the Adoration Chapel in my home parish, there was the, the altar in the Adoration Chapel where the, where the monstrance was, and it had this prayer on it that I would go pray um, whenever I was like a junior and senior in high school. I'd stop by after football practice smelling all terrible for football practice, and I'd stop by to say hi to Jesus for a few minutes before I went home and, you know, ate everything in, my, in, the, in the fridge. But I'd go spend a few minutes with Jesus, and there was this prayer that always sat there. So when I'd go kneel um, before the monstrance, I, w- I would pray this prayer, and I want to I share it with you today. Uh, so we'll pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Holy Spirit, beloved of my soul, I adore you. Enlighten me, guide me, strengthen me, console me. Tell me what I should do. Give me your orders. I promise to submit myself to all that you desire of me and to accept all that you permit to happen to me. Let me only know your will. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So that's a, it's a challenging prayer because like at the beginning, it's real, it's real sweet. Like, oh God, yeah, Holy Spirit, enlighten me, guide me, strengthen me, console me. And then we get into this into this submission of God as the Lord, as God is the king of our life. Like, tell me what I should do. Give me your orders. Like we are we are like servants of the Lord, right? And that and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about like why that's a good thing for us and why it's not like slavery. It says, I promise to submit myself to all that you desire of me. Let me only know your will. And I think the reason that this prayer that I prayed it every time, uh, junior and senior year, is because it was a struggle for me, right? Because we always have this battle between our will and the will of God. But continually acknowledging and asking God for help in that is the only way that we're ever going to unite our will with God's. Because we can't do this humanly. Believe me, I've tried, right? And it's a prayer that I've been saying. Let's see, I was a senior, I was a junior and senior in 07 and 08. So it's been almost 10 years that since the first time I prayed this prayer. And, and uh, honestly, it helped me through a lot of my discernment, my senior year of where am I going to go to college? What am I going to study? All these things. I did all of that discernment in prayer in that adoration chapel, starting and ending that time with this prayer, right? So it, it was something that has actually led and guide, guided me throughout my life. And we've had a time of discernment um, with some things going on at work recently. And like this prayer, like the reason I was able to read it to you is because it's my home screen on, or, or like my lock screen on my iPhone right now is because like I want God to continue leading and guiding um, our ministry and like for uh, some personal stuff. And like this is, is a great prayer. So uh, I, I just encourage you to if you if you liked it to continue to pray, you can uh you can Google it. I Googled the other day, oh, Holy Spirit, beloved of my soul. And this is the first picture that popped up, and it has the prayer there. Um, just keep it, keep it in your wallet. Put it as your, as your phone's lock screen. And I, I think that'll be a thing that, because like, prayer, honestly, all the prayer is the only thing that's really going to help us in this, right? We're going to make all the decisions like, oh, yeah, I'm going to live for God. I'm going to unite my will with the gods. But if we're not praying about it, there's only so far we can go in that. Uh, the third thing that we need to know about this spirit of abandon is that God's will is totally perfect and leads us to salvation and holiness. It is the best thing for us, right? We're getting more into the why of this, not just what it is, because the, the what it is is pretty challenging. But why step up to this challenge? It's because God knows better than we do, right? So we are the creation. God is the creator. So I, I, I might have said this on the show before. I know I say it in a lot of my talks. But think about it this way. There's a hammer and then there's the, the carpenter that made the hammer and uses the hammer, right? Who knows better what the hammer's used for? Who knows better how the hammer uh, can be best used? Bro, it ain't the hammer. 
Hammer doesn't have a brain. He literally can't think, right? Like, it's not the hammer. It's definitely the carpenter. The guy who created the hammer, the guy who uses the hammer, knows how best it can be used. If the hammer had a brain and was like, you know, I'd like to screw screws in, or I'd like to, you know, uh, uh, cut things. It's like, well, I mean, if you really tried with a hammer, you could cut things, I guess. <laughs> very, not very succinctly, not very easily. If you really wanted to, like, unscrew a screw, I guess you could, like, with the with the backside of the hammer, but it's not the best way to do that, right? In the same way, like, we are the creation and God is the creator. It's a little different because we have brains, uh, unlike hammers do, but honestly, a lot of us sometimes aren't, uh, are just about as smart as a hammer, so, but we are the creation, God is the creator, so he knows what's best for us. He knows how we're supposed to live. He knows what's going to bring us the greatest happiness. He has a perfect plan for us. Yet sometimes we're like, no, I know better. And it's just as silly as the hammer trying to tell the carpenter, I want to be a screwdriver. It's like, no, you don't have a mouth either. You can't talk. That's impossible. It's it's almost just as dumb for us to do the same thing. The fourth thing to, to know is that God is present in every single moment even in suffering and confusion. So this is when it gets really hard. This is when abandoning ourselves to the will of God, to like doing God's will gets tough. It's because, you know, some people want to say that if you do God's will, everything will be perfect in your life. You'll make a lot of money. You'll have a perfect wife. You'll have a perfect life. Uh, that, that's not the case. Like, look at Christians in the Bible. Almost all of them got murdered for being Christian. It's not the the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth, right? The, like, Jesus says, in, in, in these times, you will have trouble. Like, they persecuted you, or, or they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Like, this is going to, we're going to have toughness in life. And what God wants to do with us is to lead us through those moments. It's not like he's there just for the good times and he's going to lead us, leave us during these bad times. He's going to lead us during these times. So there are two verses that I want to share with you that you've probably heard before to encourage you through these, through these tough times whenever you're like, I was doing God's will and now I don't hear God in prayer and things are going bad in my life. I thought this was supposed to be good, right? To remember this verse that you've probably heard before, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know well the plans I have in mind for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for your woe, so as to give you a future of hope. And the the reason I bring this up is like, you know, a lot of people see it and it's on like plaques that people put up in their house or it's on like nice banners or things that people share on social media. But a lot of times we forget the context of what this verse was written in. Like this is in a time of deep suffering for the Israelites, for the Jewish people. Because they, they're, they're, they've been exiled, they're, they're feeling far from God, they, they haven't been living the way that they were supposed to, so things haven't been going well. But even in the muck and the mire, in all the, in all the crap that they're experiencing, all the desolation they were experiencing, God reminds him. He says, I, no, I have a plan for you. With hope. And hope is what's going to get us through those, those tough times, right? And like, so it, it, let's, let's talk about this too, because it's like, okay, I, I, God has these perfect plans for us, right? We've all made mistakes. The next verse that really goes well with this is Romans eight twenty eight. We know that all things work for the good for those who love God. We are we are called who are called according to His purpose. So for those who love God, 
all things can work for good. So even though God has this perfect plan for us, sometimes we divert from that plan with our choices, right? But for those who love God, for those who are continuing to strive after him, God, God can take those mistakes and still, still lead us in, in a place that's going to be good for us, it's going to help us grow in holiness, and it's going to make us happy, right? It's not like we make one mistake and then we messed up God's plans. God's bigger than that. He, he could take it, right? Um, and then the final thing is that when we abandon ourselves to God's will, we accept his sovereignty and, and cooperate with the grace he longs to give us. Because so often we want Jesus to be our savior, to be the one that just the guy that takes away our sins and is our friend. But we forget that he's our Lord, too. We always hear Jesus is your Lord and Savior. Well, what's a Lord? A Lord's a, a king, your leader, right? So whenever we get into times where it's like, yeah, God, I want you to save me from my sins, but I don't have time to pray today. I got other stuff to do. It's like we want him to be savior, but not Lord. We're not giving him what is due to him. And, like, this is a challenge for me, and I'm sure it's probably a challenge for a lot of you guys. Um, but it's good for us. It's what's best for us. It's the creator knowing what's best for us and what's going to lead us into our greatest future, into our greatest time. Um, so we're going to keep talking about this in the third segment. Look at David and, and, and what we can learn from his life about, the, about God's will and what uniting our will with his looks like, even with a man who is imperfect like David, like me, like a lot of you guys. So um, when we come back, though, we're going to look at, we're going to hear from Eric Sammons about his book, The Old Evangelization. Stay tuned. We are back with our second segment of Forte Catholic for the evening. As promised, we have a great guest on today. Mr. Eric Sammons is here, who's an author of a book that I, um, when I got emailed about him possibly being able to come onto the show, I did it solely based on the name of his book. So Eric wrote a book called The Old, Evangeliz- Old Evangelization, and he's on the, on the line now. Eric, how are you doing this evening? Oh, I'm doing great, Taylor. Thanks a lot for having me. Thanks for thanks for offering. I I was scrolling through. So how how this works is like um your uh, the the Carrie Beck at Catholic Answers. She emails out it's like, hey, these people are interested in coming on on the show. Um, and I looked through the through the list, and like the title of your book just jumped out at me: the old evangelization. So, um, first of all, before we even talk about that, let's just get to know you a little bit because I don't know I don't know you other than that you're the author of this, and some of my some of my guests may not know you either. So before we get into this content, why don't you just uh, give people a little bit of background to who you are? Sure. Well, I'm a convert to Catholicism, first of all. I was an evangelical Protestant, and in college I converted to the Catholic Church, which I'm very excited about still after 25 years. And I was involved in evangelization as an evangelical, you know, thus the name evangelical. <laughs> and then I continued after becoming Catholic, and I've really been involved with evangelization in the Catholic Church for a quarter of a century. I've worked at a parish level in evangelization. I've worked just individually evangelization. I also was the director of evangelization for a diocese for five years. So Catholic evangelization is something very dear to my heart, and I've always enjoyed doing it, and I've seen Lots of ways to do it, and I've seen good ways to do it and bad ways to do it. So really, this book is kind of the culmination of all that I've learned and seen and, and studied over the years. 
Yeah, so I've I've been working at the church for quite some time, and I've probably seen some of the similar things you have of some great things in evangelization and some not so great. So um, I love I was looking at your at your book online on Amazon, and I loved the uh, I think it was the second paragraph in the description of the book. It says, uh, and this is a quote from you. It seems like every day somebody comes out with a new trick for bringing people into the faith, mixing pop psychology with spiritual fads and marketing jargon. These techniques seem to last only until the next big idea comes around, and despite their hype, they usually don't win many souls. And I was like, "Bam! That is that that is real." <laughs> He's Eric's not uh, not holding back at all. It's throwing the big punches. So, um, what are some of these things? That you see with this uh, "quote unquote" new evangelization, right? So, uh, l- well, let's take a step back. Let's define new evangelization before we jump into how um, some positives and negatives of it. So, how would you describe okay. for our audience what the new evangelization is? Well, the new evangelization was called by Pope John Paul II in the late seventies, early eighties, and his idea, his main idea, I think, of it was that we are in a new situation in the church. Historically, evangelization has always meant missionary work. You go to another country or another continent in order to tell people about Jesus who have literally never heard of him before in their life. So think of St. Francis Xavier, somebody like that. And that's always been historically what evangelization is. However, over the past maybe 50 years or so, we're in a situation now where we have baptized Catholics who have never been evangelized, who have never even been catechized. And so now evangelization includes the person maybe sitting next to you in the pew or the fallen away Catholic who's your neighbor or maybe even a family member. And so we're in a new situation where now we're evangelizing people who are quote unquote Catholic, but they're not really evangelized or not a disciple of Jesus Christ. So I think that's the number one aspect of the new evangelization. And I think it's a, it's a very good point that JP2 is making. I would also say, though, over, since that time, everything has been tagged new evangelization. It's like become the buzzword of the Catholic world that we just want to say, if we do anything that is telling people about the church, it's now called the new evangelization. And some of that's good, but some of it is not so good. And so really, when I'm talking about the old evangelization, I'm saying, okay, what is the new evangelization built upon? How have Catholics been evangelizing since the time of Jesus Christ? You know, Jesus himself, the apostles, and all the saints throughout the ages, how they evangelize and looked at that as the model for evangelization. So, yeah, it's it's funny. You got a couple of things in there. So we've we've seen some negatives, some people like saying that, you know, a, a new font or a new picture is a new evangelization, right? So, um, but I love how you say like the, the main point of this is the the group that it's targeted towards right it's it's towards people who are catholic or were formerly catholic who were never catechized never evangelized so in looking at jesus the old evangelization the master evangelizer uh, what are some of the things that that jesus did that you think might have been um lost over time or or a focus that we need to have of what we can learn from jesus as the master evangelizer Well, the image of Jesus that I think most people today have is he's like this tolerant hippie who just goes around saying, be nice. And that's really the essence of everything he is. But if you read the Gospels, that's not Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the Gospels. He goes out and he confronts the devil directly. I mean, the first thing he does in his public ministry, he goes 40 days in the desert to fight with the devil. So he confronts the devil and demonic power directly. That's one thing he does. He 
he proclaims the truth, even if it means people will turn away. So I tell in the, in the um, book, I tell the story of the rich young man, where he tells the rich young man, follow the commandments. The rich young man's like, okay, sure, no problem. And then he says, what else do I have to do? And Jesus says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. And the rich young man walks away, sad because he had many possessions, the gospel tells us. Well, a lot of evangelization, quote-unquote evangelization today is, let's make the, the truths of the Catholic faith, faith as palatable as possible to not offend anybody, not to make anybody feel uncomfortable, and not to challenge anybody. And so what happens is it becomes just this kind of marketing campaign like, hey, we're Catholic. Why don't you join us because it's cool to be Catholic or it's, you know, it's, it's no big deal. But what Jesus did, he was like, no. You have to completely change your life in order to be my disciple. You have to radically alter the way you're living. And we see that over and over again, the way he, when he encountered people, he would call them to a higher way of living as his disciples. And a lot of times that's missed today because we're so worried about, oh, we might turn people away. We might, you know, we don't want to say that because they might be offended or they might feel uncomfortable. I mean, Jesus had no problem making people feel uncomfortable when he, because he knew if they got over that discomfort, life would be so much better. I mean, he didn't do it just to be a jerk. <laughs> he did it because he wanted to call them to a better way of life. So you think that's that's one of the big things that's missing in our evangelization in the church today is that, that there's too many people who are scared of sharing the whole truth with love, right? I think a lot of times we yes. we hear that statement and we're like, share the truth with love, and we emphasize that love. It's like, we need to be right. loving, we need to be caring, but like we kind of glaze over that the the fullness of truth, like everything that Jesus wanted to share, right? And like you said, right. like, like there are not only the, the rich young man who, who walked away sad, but like Jesus would look at the Pharisees and be like, you brood of vipers. And I'm like, right. I don't know about that. I was not taught that when I was taught how to evangelize. I was not told to yell at, <laughs> to yell at these people. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And, you know, one story that is a central story, it's actually a picture of it's on the cover, is when he encounters the Samaritan woman at the well. And that's a beautiful story from John 4, where he you know, encounters this woman, and he takes a regular conversation with her about water and getting water out of the well, and he turns it into a spiritual discussion, which is a good tool for evangelization. Take everyday life situations and talk about spiritual meanings. A lot of great evangelizers over in history have done that. But then it gets to the point where, okay, now the woman is more interested. Her interest is peaked, like, oh, this might be the Messiah. This might be somebody that I can, you know, I, I'm going to want to follow. And what does he tell her to do? He said, oh, go get your husband. And she basically, you know, she has to admit, I'm not really married. And he's like, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the man you're with now isn't your husband. I mean, think about that for a second. He's directly confronting her irregular marriage situation. That's something to, I think in today's world we can very much sympathize with, empathize with that situation. But he doesn't, he doesn't gloss over it because he knows that this woman has to change her lifestyle. The way she's been living, you know, living with all these different men and living with a man who's not her husband has to change if she's going to find joy and peace in Christ. So he confronts her with it directly. Whereas we often, we want to avoid such situa situations like the plague. It's not that we should go up to a complete stranger that we know is divorced and remarried and say to him, hey, you got to change this. No. But if we have a, a relationship with somebody, maybe a family member, a good friend, something like that, eventually for true evangelization, we're going to have to bring up that uncomfortable situation and talk to them about ways in which they can overcome that and and become a, you know, live the fullness of the faith. So I mean, that's a perfect example there, the woman at the well, that we forget about the part 
where he says he confronts her with her lifestyle choices and just think about the part where he says, oh, yeah, I have um, you know, the, the water that gives eternal life. So that's another example of where Jesus confronts people directly. Yeah, and, and let's let's dive into that. Like, what does that mean for us? So and we all have people in our lives, people in our families who are, are living in, in, you know, just like this woman, living in ways that aren't conducive with the gospel, that don't fit well with with the gospel message. Um, so in like a practical way, what do you think are some of the best ways that we can use this old evangelization, use Jesus as the master teacher to share the good news with them? I think, number one, we always have to remember that Christ is calling every person to be his complete and full disciple. It's not just for an elite people. It's not just, you know, for me and not for others. The reason I say that is, is because sometimes we say, well, that's the best they can do. You know, they're living that lifestyle. That's the best they can do. No, the best they can do is to be living the fullness of Christ. Let me just give an example. My best friend from high school, he is, uh, lives a homosexual lifestyle. And we've been good friends for years. You know, he came out later in college, not while we were in high school. And but we've remained uh, good friends over the years. And I have talked to him before because we have such a, a good relationship and friendship. I have said to him, I don't think you should be living this lifestyle. This is not what's best for you. I think you will find more joy and peace with a chaste lifestyle. I don't say, hey, you got to um, you know, you're going to turn into a heterosexual tomorrow or something like that. But I do say to him very directly, a chaste lifestyle. And I, I tell him about courage, you know, the, the apostolate in the church for people who are struggling with same sex attraction. And let me tell you, it was extremely awkward and difficult when I first talked to him about that. I, I'll make no um, I'll make no claim it was easy for me, but I felt like I, it had to be done. I couldn't just ignore that elephant in the room because I knew that wasn't what was best for him. So we talked about it, and we're still good friends. I mean, he knows he has not changed that lifestyle choice of his. And OK, I, that's not my job. I can't force him. That's the Holy Spirit in prayer that, that's going to do that. But I, I made it very clear to him where I thought was the best way to live and the way Jesus is calling him to live. So there's a practical example. But note that that was done in a situation where I was good friends with this person. I had a long-term relationship with them, and he knew I cared for him. And so therefore, you know, he could listen to what I was trying to say, even though it was uncomfortable for him to hear. Yeah, we're, we're here. We're talking to Eric Sammons about his book, The Old Evangelization. Uh, thanks for sharing that uh, that specific example for us, because I think that is one of the things that um, one of those hot button issues, homosexuality, that, that people I've, a lot of times in the church feel afraid to talk about um, because it's it's like, oh, I don't want to offend people. Right. But it's a it's a great sign of of, of love that you shared with that. You shared those things with him. And it's just a, a beautiful thing that uh, that y'all are still friends because uh, that, that you were honest about the awkwardness of it. But I feel a lot of people think, oh, I'm just going to turn this person off and I'm never going to be able to talk to him again. But the fact that y'all are still friends after that conversation is a big deal. So um, that was a great example about how to share the good news. I know that in the book uh, and, and in, in your experience, you've probably seen some ways not to evangelize. <laughs> uh, so what are, what are some uh, do not try these at home uh, evangelization tips? Well, I think the biggest one is you have to know the relationship you have with somebody. If, for example, I met somebody in public and I found out they lived a homosexual lifestyle, I wouldn't necessarily say the same. I would, I definitely wouldn't say the same thing I said to my good friend from high school to him because I have no relationship with him. He's not going to hear what I have to say. And so you really have to gauge each situation and say, okay, 
what is my relationship with the person? What is my duty to them as well? So, for example, a parent to a child has a much different duty than I do to some guy I meet in the grocery checkout line. And so you have to gauge all of that. I think some of the biggest don'ts I, I would say that we fall into is that we avoid at all costs anything that might make the other person feel uncomfortable. And what I mean by that is I've heard this, I've heard this line over and over and over again. And that's somebody would say, well, I don't want to harm the relationship. I don't want to bring that up. And so they literally never bring up anything, uh, any call to discipleship with the other person. And so the person just keeps living as they've always lived with nobody calling them. I, I have a friend, a good friend. Um, she was grew up Catholic. She kind of didn't practice the faith very much. She ended up uh, getting married outside the Catholic Church uh, to a man, a, a good Christian man. I think they were married in the Episcopal Church. I can't remember which one it was. And she had no idea that this was something that you're not allowed as a Catholic. A Catholic has to be married in a Catholic Church. And so she just, you know, kind of blindly just kept going. You know, she'd still go to Mass sometimes, and she'd go receive communion, all that. Well, the priest gave a sermon one day where he basically explained the church's teaching on marriage and the sanctity of it and indissolubility of it, and also that Catholics had to be married in the Catholic church or else they, they can't receive communion. She was shocked by it. So she went up to him and she told him her situation. Now this guy could, this priest could have very easily just been like, oh, well, kind of like, you know, him and Hall and try to make it so it wasn't very, you know, didn't make her feel bad like that. But he said to her in love, Yes, it's right. You're you're not married. I don't know exact words he said. You're not married in the church. And so let's work to make that happen. And she was very open to that. And now today, she has a beautiful Catholic family. They go to daily mass and the husband converted to Catholicism a few years later because he was so impressed by the church's strong teaching on marriage. And so, I mean, that's a perfect example of great evangelization by that priest, but it was difficult. I'm sure he didn't like the fact that he had to tell this woman, you know, um, actually your marriage isn't really a marriage. I mean, oh my goodness, how do you say that? But he did. And now the fruit of it is this beautiful Catholic family, the husband converts. I mean, it's it just, so there, you know, avoiding those situations, I think it's probably the biggest don't because we're afraid of what's going to happen and, you know, how we're going to look. People think we're going to be a religious nut or something like that. Um, but often it works out, maybe not that beautifully, but it works out in the sense that you, you, you've done your duty and the other person respects you for it. Eric, thanks for coming on and sharing with us today. In our last like thirty seconds, because you said that you uh, you were you grew up evangelical and now you're uh, evangelizing in the Catholic Church. Um, what do you think is the biggest thing, the last thing that you can say, the last encouragement to those Catholics who are listening? Um, what can we learn from our Protestant brothers and sisters who evangelize in a tremendous way? Um, um, what can we learn from them? Well, I think they take it very seriously because they know souls are at risk. They really do believe in eternal life in heaven or hell. And I think we can learn from that, that this isn't a game. This isn't just a marketing campaign, but it's a real life situation where we want the best eternally for our friends and neighbors and family. And I, I love how the evangelicals take it that seriously. And they know it's my duty to share the faith with others. I, I love how you like you connected that with what you were just talking about, because a, a lot of times the biggest thing that holds us back is a fear of what's going to happen. And I think the acknowledgement that this has real stakes will help keep us so um, will help drive away that fear in us. So, Eric, thanks for coming on. Um, if you want to uh, check Eric out, guys, it's uh, you can go to Eric Sammons, S-A-M-M-O-N-S dot com. Uh, you can find his book 
on Amazon.com. So, uh, Eric, thanks for coming, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. We are back after a couple minutes break. I want to thank Eric again for coming on the show. I, I, I absolutely love him. He's a lot of fun. Uh, just that, that book title gets me every time. So uh, if you liked Eric and, want, and uh, want to hear more from him, you can check him out on his website. And uh, do him a favor and go, go buy his book. He's a good, good dude, uh, and it's always good to support uh, good Catholic ministry. So um, we're going we're gonna to finish this last segment talking about continuing our conversation about abandonment to the Lord, like uniting our will with God's. And what I want to do is just look at it. We did, we did it like a quote unquote academic style in the first segment, right? Like here's five points that Taylor's going to talk to you about and convince you to be more like Jesus. Now we're going to do it like a story. We're going to look at, at, at David. So um, just setting the, setting the stage a little bit, little man, David, you, you, you know him as the guy that, uh, Killed Goliath with a slingshot. I still think that's like the most incredible story. (laughs) Little kid. Like there's this champion of the Philistines. Huge man. And he dies because he gets a rock thrown in his forehead. Like I just wish I could have been there and seen that. It would have been hilarious. Um, But I also really like living now because there's AC. So thanks, Jesus. Um, But so Saul was the king whenever David killed Goliath, right? Everybody was scared of Goliath, including Saul. And uh, David David kills him and, and gets pretty famous very very quickly, right? Saul doesn't like that. He he um he gets pretty jealous of of David. He knows that uh, the Lord has chosen David to be the to, to be the king. He's blessed David to be the future king of Israel. And he's like, well, that's my job. <laughs> I want to keep my job. So um, like any king who's jealous would do, he tried to kill David twelve times. Now that's a lot of times. I don't know if anybody's ever tried to kill you, but 12 is, is, is a little much, right? Um, so I was reading a commentary on this earlier, and they were like, some people called David a cat because he had nine lives. I'm like, well, if he's a cat, he'd have died <laughs> on, the, on the ninth one. Isn't that kind of how it works, right? But um, but he didn't. I mean, David's dead. I mean, he, he has died. This was 4,000 years ago. But Saul didn't kill him. So, um, so was, during this time, like, David's running away, right? Uh, at at first, Saul's like, "I'm going to kill him," and then uh, Saul's son, who's a who's a friend of David, kind of talks him off the ledge and and, uh, and doesn't kill him. But and then like Saul, over the course of many many years, just continually is trying to to kill David. He either sends soldiers at him or he throws his spear at him, which is kind of a weird thing to do, right? Um, he, he's just like, I've never been in a in a conversation where you're just like tired of the conversation. You're like, yeah. I'm going to throw a spear at this guy. <laughs> like, that's just, that didn't cross my head. But then again, I'm not a king of Israel 4,000 years ago. But he, he um, Saul kind of made a name for himself by throwing spears at people fairly often. And uh, he missed a lot. So he wasn't the greatest spearsman. So I guess uh, he wasn't a great warrior, but apparently he was a decent king. But anyway, I digress. But kind of fun little, fun little story. Uh, uh, during this time that David is running away from Saul, 
you would think that a natural reaction, if somebody tries to kill you 12 times, it's like, if I get the chance to kill this guy, I'm going to do it, right? Like, that was just a natural thing, especially in the Old Testament. There's a lot of murder and all those kind of things, right? I want to get revenge. It's a very human, natural response. So there's this time where Saul's army is chasing after David, and David is able to sneak into Saul's camp during the night while, while Saul and, and all the uh, people that, who were with him were, were sleeping. So David walks in, sees Saul sleeping there. Has a spe- he has his spear like stuck in the ground right next to his head, and he's got a bottle, uh, not a bottle, <laughs> bottle of water. I'm drinking bottled water. He has a, a jug of water sitting there, right? So David's standing over Saul, this guy who's been chasing after him for years, trying to kill him, and he's like, man... Here's this. Here's his spear. I could kill him with this spear. Like that happens in action movies, right? That would have been the the final victory, right? But David looks at him. He's like, "No, this isn't right. I can't kill him. Like it would not be right to kill the leader of Israel. Like he was respecting the kingship of Israel, the leader of God's people. So instead of killing him, what he does is he takes his spear. <laughs> so. Instead of murder, he steals. And if you were listening last week, we uh, we played a game of uh, guess. Like we we had two people trying to put the Ten Commandments in order: "Thou shalt not kill" and "Thou shalt not uh, steal" are both on there. But I guess if you're going to do one or the other, I guess steal is the better one of the the lesser of the evils. So uh, this is why I love David. He steals steals the spear. He walks out of the camp, gets up on a hill, and then starts yelling at the camp. He's like, "Hey!" I'm paraphrasing now. Hey. Saul! And he's like dancing and like pumping the spear up in the air. It's like, I got your spear! <laughs> Just like, like kind of poking fun at, uh, no, po- no pun intended, poking fun at him with the spear. All right. And uh, so he kind of just to, sh- to prove that he's like, hey, I could have killed you and I didn't. So please stop trying to kill me. Right. And then he actually returns the spear, leaves it there, and then he runs away so that they don't kill him. Um, and Saul doesn't get the message. He still tries to kill him multiple times. But so if you think about it, this is where, try to put yourself in David's shoes, fleeing for your life from the man who, who, like, you used to serve as king. Killed Goliath for him. After he killed Goliath, he actually served, like, as, as uh, like, in the king's court, uh, so to say, right? He is, his best friend was Saul's son. His wife was Saul's daughter. So like he's completely ingrained in this community. He like left his you know parents and all the all the all these things, right? He's completely alone on the run for, on the run for his life. How would that feel? Like think if you if somebody is like trying like threatening to kill you, you couldn't see your family, your kids anymore. You couldn't see your parents. You couldn't live where you're on out. Like you just constantly on the run with the fear of somebody trying to kill you. Not a good place, right? And this is what's crazy. This is what I want to get into of like how David reacted to this. Obviously, he didn't kill Saul. That's a, that's a good place to start. <laughs> but he wrote, many of you know that David is like the main psalmist. Most, if not all of the psalms were written by David. And there were five that were written during this time. This time where David is on the run for his life. One of those is Psalm chapter 27. It says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? So right from the get-go, like there's a lot of people that naturally David should be fearful of, like the army <laughs> chasing after him to kill him, right? But he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my life's refuge. Of whom should I be afraid? 
when evildoers come to devour my flesh. All right, I've heard this before and never really thought about it until today. I don't, like, how do you even, like, think, like, people are going to try to come eat me? <laughs> that's just an odd thing to think about, right? But that's how weird these people chasing them are. When evildoers come to devour my flesh, these, my enemies and foes themselves, stumble and fall. Though an army a camp against me, my heart does not fear. Though war be waged against me, even then do I trust. So he's saying, like, I trust God. I trust the will of God. I trust in this person that is God. Even though things aren't going well in my life. Even though people are trying to kill me. But there's one thing I ask of the Lord. This I seek. To dwell in the Lord's house all the days of my life. To gaze on the Lord's beauty. To visit his temple. So he's like... Okay, what's what's most important, right? Even though these people aren't going to kill me, or, or they're trying to come kill me, I'm not going to stop living for God. I'm not going to bow down to their level. I'm not going to turn into this murderer. Um, what I want more than anything, and what, what David's saying, what I want more than anything is to be with the Lord, to be in his house, to gaze on his beauty, to visit him. Like, I want to go to heaven, right? So when... We have enemies pushing up against us that are trying to make us have this human reaction that is not the will of God. This is where it gets difficult, but this is, this is where we can learn from David of how to act in these situations. He continues, hear my voice, Lord, when I call. Have mercy on me and answer me. And then verse 8, come, says my heart. Seek his face. Your face, Lord, do I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not repel your servant in anger. And he goes on, even if my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will take me in. And then he ends with, wait for the Lord, take courage, be stout-hearted, wait for the Lord. So there are a ton of good lessons in this time, this time of desolation, this time where he doesn't feel God, this time where everything's going wrong around him. This psalm actually doesn't address God much. It's not God telling him, hey, I'm your light and your salvation. You shouldn't fear anybody. It's David essentially repeating the truths that he knows about God to himself. When evildoers come against me, my foes will fall. He is, even though everything's going wrong in his life, he still remembers the truths that God has instilled on his heart that has taught him throughout the years that God will protect him. God will save him. God will bring him through this tough time. And that's an amazing revelation for us because there will be times where things are going crazy around you and you won't, you, you think you won't know the will of God. What does God want from me in this? Why isn't God telling me? Why isn't it clear? And what we need to do in those times is to remember the things that God has proven to us over time, whether you've been a Christian for a day or 17,000 days or however, I don't even know how many years that is. I'm not good at math. But whether you've been a Christian for a short amount of time or a long amount of time, we all need to remember the basic truths, the basic promises that God gives to us, especially in those times of struggle. Because that's when we start to doubt. That's when we start to be like, oh, no, I don't trust God. I'm going to figure this out on my own. One of the other Psalms is Psalm 34 that he writes during this time where he's running for his life. And it's really interesting because it's, you know, obviously, what, six chapters later, seven chapters later, again, not good at math, than the one we just read. 
and it's thanksgiving to God for delivering him. And listen and see if you hear any similarities between this one and the previous psalm. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be always in my mouth. I sought the Lord and he answered me, delivered me from all my fears. The poor one cried out and the Lord heard. And from all his distress, he saved him. So in the first one, he's proclaiming these truths like, when I cry out to God, he's going to hear me. When I seek the Lord, he'll answer me. And then he says, like, a few chapters later, I did that, and God saved me. This is right after one of the times where, where God does save him from Saul killing him. So this is this confirmation in prayer. It reminds me of the interview we did with Ashley Breland last week about all the confirmations that she has gotten in her prayer and how that's really built up her life, her life with God, her life of prayer. Because it's amazing whenever you pray for something and then it happens. And we remember those times whenever things aren't going our way. He continues in Psalm 34, 7, or Psalm 34, 8. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he saves them. It's the difference between that previous psalm where he says, there are armies encamping around me trying to kill me. He says, now the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and saves them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the loyal one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you holy ones. Nothing is lacking for those who fear him. The eyes of the Lord are directed towards the righteous, and he hears their cry. So even if we're, if we're in a time of prayer where we feel we're not hearing, like we don't hear anything from God, God hears us. He promises over and over again throughout the scriptures, especially in the Psalms, that when you ask something of me, I will hear you. When I hear the cry of the distressed, I will hear them, and I will answer them. I just, I just love David so much. It's such a great story. Um, so how are we going to achieve this abandonment, right? Because it's a difficult thing. Admittedly, it's a very tough thing to be co- like completely abandoned to God's will. And I think the only way we're going to be able to do it is by daily surrendering to him in prayer and in worship. What worship is, first and foremost, is, is giving God his due. We say that God is God, he is awesome, and we are not God. So David, again, it's this famous story of, of when the Ark of the, the Ark of the Covenant is coming back into, this, into the city of David, back into the holy city. And David goes out, and the, like I, I, I thought until literally today, because we were taught this forever, that David was like unashamed and he was dancing naked in front of the temple, in front of all the people, which is just an odd scene, right? <laughs> like picturing the king, this holy man, dancing naked to no music next to the temple where God is. Like, that just doesn't make sense, right? That's because that's not what happened, right? I was, I was, when I was doing some research on this earlier, it says that he was wearing a linen ephod. And what this, well, we don't know what that is, right? Uh, some people thought it was like a loincloth and they, they, they equated linen ephod with loincloth, which is why, like, if you're dancing in a linen cloth or a loincloth, you're, you will be exposed, right? And that's why people thought that. But what this, what this linen ephod was, was what all the priests wore. Like, the, the Jewish priests wore uh, for worship, right? And so, David is so excited that God, like, the, like that, that God in his presence, in, in, in the tabernacle, is coming back where he should be, right? With amongst the people in the holy city, in the temple. 
He's so excited about this that what he does and why this was a big deal was that he took off his kingly robes. He took off the outer garments that, that set him apart, that put him, that, that showed everyone that he was the king. So then he looked just like everybody else in the procession because they were, you know, all the priests were carrying this and processing in and playing music. And there are, there are biblical scholars that I'm not, not smart enough to be, but I was reading their, their commentaries on this scripture earlier, is that, like, it wasn't even a crazy dance. If you've seen, like, Orthodox Jewish men dance, it's, it's like, it's very rhythmic and, 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 and simple. It's kind of swaying back and forth, all these kind of things, right? Um, think, think about the, uh, the guy dancing in Hitch, right? Just keep it right here. Simple, real, simple, real dance, right? Just don't move too much. Um, but the reason that that his wife was mad and like the reason that people think she was naked, that, that think that he was naked was that um, she comes in and says to him, how glorious being real sarcastic, how glorious was the King of Israel today uncovering himself to the eyes of the maids and his servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And if you think about it, she was the daughter of the previous King. She was the daughter of Saul. So she grew up in royalty. So she's like, we're up here. Like the royalty's up here, the peasants are down here. So what she was, she doesn't even mention his dancing. She's mad because she, David made himself like one of the other people. He humbled himself in worship of the Lord. And if we're going to be able to unite our will to God's, we're going to need to pray and we're going to need to be humble. Those are the two biggest things that we can take away from this story of David. So um, thank you guys for listening this week. It has been a lot of fun. If ever you missed the show, go check out the podcast. Do me a favor. If you like anything that I've ever said on the show, when you see it on social media, share the episode with your friends so more people can listen to it. This has been a lot of fun. We will be back next week. See ya!